Welcome to this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO. Joining me today is the 13th president of Clinton College and a graduate of Morehouse College. Please help me welcome the Reverend Dr. Lester McCorn to HBCU. Dr. McCorn, I'm so glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you, D. Brown. I'm glad to be with you. Hey, look, you got a rich history in HBCUs, and I want to just jump right into the program and ask you, how did you end up going to... Uh, Morehouse College. Oh, wow. Great story. Um, I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, a uh, very small African-American population. I was a church boy, so okay. I grew up in church. Um, I started preaching at an early age, so I knew I wanted to go to college. I just yeah. wasn't sure where. In my senior year, I was having a conversation with our presiding elder's wife, uh -huh. who asked me, what are you going to do with your life? Where are you going? I was like, I don't know. She said, have you considered Morehouse College? Like Morehouse, what is that? Right, right. And then she says, you know, that's Martin Luther King's alma mater. So yeah. King was my hero. Right. So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Tell me more. She said it's an all male school. I was like, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could count me out. And then she says, well, Spelman College is right. across the street, <laughs> right. an all women's school. It's like, okay, tell me more. <laughs> Balance it out. <laughs> exactly. And then she told me about Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was the president of Morehouse yeah. and King's mentor. And um, the more I heard about him, the more intrigued. And really, my whole time at Morehouse, as much as I loved and tried to live up to King's legacy, yeah. I was so impressed with Benjamin Mays. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's how I got to Morehouse, but that legacy is what kept me at Morehouse. Right. So do you remember the first day you set foot on campus? Oh, my What, what was that like? God. <laughs> my pastor tells the story of when he came down to visit me yeah. uh, to help open my first bank account. I'm a real poor kid. He opens my account, gives me a little money, and we sitting in in the bank, and I didn't remember this, but he did. Yeah. I was sitting there and I said, I've never seen so many beautiful black women in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he starts laughing. So he tells that story for years up until he died. Yeah. But being on that campus, the culture, obviously being with your people is just a great feeling. Right. Um, a college that gets you, understands you, yeah. um, is fighting for you, wanting the best for you, cheering for you. You felt that you right. know, when you came right. on the campus. And you could be authentically yourself, HBCU. Right? Yeah. You, you can be you yeah. on the campus and be celebrated at seeing other people who have a similar story. Right. So who were the people on campus that uh, mentored you and took you under their wing and, and helped you uh, along that journey? Yeah, there was so many. You really felt like the entire staff was rooting yeah. for you. And I think we have the similar experience at Clinton. My mentors, however, um, my religion professor, Dr. Aaron Parker, he was my advisor. Uh -huh. He um, was a young PhD at the time when I was there. I mean, he might have been in his 30s. He went straight from Morehouse into a PhD program yeah. at Emory and had his PhD by the time he was like 27 years old. So he was a professor we all looked up to. And then the dean of the chapel, the Martin Luther King Chapel, yeah. Dr. Lawrence Edward Carter, 
uh, who remarkably is still there. He's been the dean for 40-something years. Wow. He's 81 years really? old. Really? Wow. But he was my mentor. I worked as a chapel assistant yeah. uh, in the chapel, and that was a unique opportunity for us to be mentored by him, but also the exposure we had to all of the amazing speakers, leaders, and lecturers yeah. that came. The chapel assistants often got you know, front row seats and yeah. sitting down and talking to them. So that experience, and then the older students were mentors to me. Yeah. Um, the the gentleman who became um, the president of the SGA, Adam Smith, was a mentor. I looked up to him as a big brother, and eventually, I, you know, I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha. Yeah. And so those brothers were like big brothers because I grew up without a brother. Right. So these guys were my brothers. So it was a combination of faculty, staff and older students who became my right. mentors. So talk to me about Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, I know you pledged at Morehouse College. And, yes. Uh, what role did that play in your, in your life then and now? Perfect compliment to my Morehouse experience was being a part of Alpha Phi Alpha. I didn't know about fraternities. No one in my family pledged a Greek letter organization. Yeah. Um, so uh, the exposure, obviously on the yard, you get to see everybody. You, know, right. you go to your first step show and you're like blown away by this and then you see them in a different light even without their colors. You know, you're seeing the leaders on campus right. who are part of the D9. Um, I really didn't look at any other fraternity. When I saw the Brothers of Alphas, like, that's it. Of course, Martin Luther King was an alpha. Yeah. So that's, the, that's one of the few areas we kind of disagree. But yeah, we, I understand. I'm going to let you continue. I, I understand. I understand. <laughs> it's your show, so I, got, I can't say nothing about that. <laughs> but, but the Brothers of Alpha, I mean, in turn, and you know this. Nah, you, but, you, know, yeah, it's all you, love. You, you identify yeah. with, you know, and you couldn't see yourself pledging anything else, right? right? That's right. So, I mean, for me, I didn't see myself pledging anything but alpha. And... And I, um, when, once I was exposed, I was like, this is amazing. I, um, I actually became president of our chapter yeah. when I was there. So I, I was freshman class president at Morehouse. Okay. So I've always been a leader. Um, and I love being able to have influence and impact for good, right. obviously. And, and a lot of the leaders on campus were, were alphas. I also, um, little tidbit, I think you know this story. Um, I was in the movie School Days, right, yeah. with the Brothers of Alpha. So right. when Spike Lee came to film on our campuses, both at Morehouse, Clark, and Spelman, um, he had a step show, and uh -huh. so the winner of the step show got right. to be in the movie. So, right. <laughs> so we won the step show. Here's a bit of trivia, though. The sound in the step show scene didn't come out the way Spike Lee wanted it. So Spike sent us a video of the step show and asked us to learn everybody else's steps. Yeah. He flew us to New York at 40 Acres in a Mule studio, yeah. sat us in front of the big screen, and we stepped in sync that whole scene. So the sound, the booming of the stepping yeah. in that is the brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha. Wow. Yeah. So And, and I often <laughs> run into people now who tell me, I went to an HBCU because of school days. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. who pledged that I pledged because of That's that true. scene of That's Alpha Phi Alpha yeah. and the step scene. Yeah. What was that experience like, though, just being part of that whole production? Oh, my as a God. College student? Well, you know, D, you don't even realize at the moment how special it is. Yeah. Like here, 35 years later, I'm running into people telling me this story. Um, 
for us, it was like a part of the magic of HBCUs. Yeah. We just kind of took it for granted. Yeah, yeah. It's like, here we are at HBCU. Yeah, Spike Lee went to Morehouse. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, this is our story. Right, It's right. just that our story gets told to the whole to world. To the whole world, yeah. And that was really, as you know, that was a time when HBCUs began to explode. Right. That was sort of a renaissance period. Yes. A different world was on TV. Yep. School days came out. So you got this exposure. Now, I think, is the second round of that. We're beginning to see right. a new renaissance. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Morehouse, uh, like all other HBCUs, have um, characteristics that are just unique to Morehouse. Yeah. Talk about the Morehouse experience and what just make it different than any other place. Yeah, great question. So we call it the Morehouse mystique. Yeah. I forget who came up with that title, but Charles Willey, who was a professor at Harvard and a Morehouse alum, wrote a whole essay about it and it's stuck you know yeah. it's like the morehouse mystique we have a saying you can always tell a morehouse man but you can't tell him much <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably true yeah. ask my wife it is true right. <laughs> it's true but um yeah there's just an expectation right so yeah. what like at clinton we um they adopted this slogan that um that i brought to the campus excellence without excuse right and my very first speech to the campus was um i i built it on benjamin may's statement that low aim is sin yeah not failure but low aim so the bar is set high and morehouse men kind of understand it um, Dr. Franklin, Robert Michael Franklin, when he was president, he developed what was called the five wells. Um, well-read, well-spoken, well-dressed, well-traveled, and well-balanced is what yeah. a Morehouse man should be. And, you know, you, you can imagine, if you keep telling people that over and over again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. So going back to, again, Benjamin Elijah Mays, we think kind of set the prototype. But even before him, John Hope, who was the first black president of Morehouse, he set a standard there that Mays kind of picked up and took to another level. And obviously the other thing that makes it so special is the alumni, yeah. right? Your school is pretty much judged by the students you produce. Right. So, so many great men have come out of Morehouse. And right. the final thing I'll say, D, is there is no other school that is tailored for just African-American men. There's That's, no other school. Right. So there's several women's schools, there are two, um, black women's schools, Spelman College and Bennett College, but there's only one Morehouse College. Right, right. I, I can't disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know, though, in, in your opinion, how did Morehouse uh, prepare you for your professional journey? Yeah, so um, those five wells, you know, that gave me a sense of self-confidence and mm -hmm. self-esteem. Um, it prepared me to never see myself inferior to anyone or anybody. I right. think that's what HBCUs do right. well. Morehouse, because they massage that ego so much, <laughs> <laughs> we go out and believe we're supposed to leave Cup wherever the world. we go. That's Cup it. The world. You know, and so, and I mean, in all honesty, this is no exaggeration. I've lived in several cities, right? Yeah. So I pastored in Boston, New Haven, Connecticut, Chicago, Illinois. Atlanta and Baltimore and every city I've been in when they found out that I was a Morehouse man They expected me to have something to say. Yeah, and they expected me to be able to lead right That's what Morehouse does for its graduates, right? So now you serve as the 13th president mm -hmm. of Clinton College uh, in Rock Hill, South Carolina Yes, sir. Uh, talk to me about your journey to get in that position and mm -hmm. what it's like leading uh, that institution Yeah, thank you for that. Well, um 
It is the honor of my life to serve as a college president. When I was at Morehouse, so going back to your earlier question of how I got there, mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time I, I wanted to be a college president. But once I got to Morehouse, it's like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Again, going back to Benjamin Elijah Mays, my oldest son is actually named after him. So I, I just revere yeah. and, and honor Mays. And so I was looking, you know, throughout my life, I, you know, I, I've really been in school all my life. It feels like it, you know, taking classes, <laughs> right. working on degrees. Right. And and my goal was to prepare myself to be a president. And I knew that um, I had to have the right credentials and the right blend of experiences to right. even be considered right. for a presidency. So um, I, I got my doctorate of ministry in 2011 and I began teaching the Gardner-Taylor Fellows at United Seminary. And the more I did it, the more I felt like I was at home. This is what I'm supposed to be doing, yeah. teaching and developing the next generation of leaders. Right. Um, and then um, I wasn't satisfied. So I always wanted to, I started a PhD when I was living in Chicago at Garrett Seminary at Northwestern University. And uh, life got in the way, raising children, pastoring a church, and um, I kind of let it go. So I went and did the D-Men and still wasn't satisfied. Yeah. So as soon as I started the PhD program, I got a call from a friend who's United Methodist, he was a classmate with me at Garrett, who said, hey Lester, um, there's a college that's looking for a new president. It wasn't Clinton, it was another school associated with the United Methodist Church. Okay. And, um, and I said, Matt, did I ever tell you I wanted to be a college president? <laughs> um, and he said no, but when they were describing the kind of person they were looking for, I thought about you. So that reignited the fire in me. When I yeah. told my wife about it, you know, I acted all surprised when yeah. I told her. She said, what are you surprised for? When I met you, <laughs> you were talking about being a college president. So um, I did not get that presidency. That school was kind of going through some transitions and really didn't need to take a risk on a guy who had never been a president before. Right. But at that time, as I said, it reignited and I was having conversations with some of our bishops in our denomination and one of them said to me, have you considered Clinton College? And I was like, Clinton? No, it's not even on my radar. I mean, I'd known about the school. Yeah. I've been in the AME Zion Church my whole life. I knew it as Clinton Junior College. It had recently become a four-year liberal arts college. I started looking at it. I actually took a trip down. No one knew. I came on a reconnaissance mission <laughs> to check out Clinton. I went yeah. for graduation. So I went to the baccalaureate service and graduation. And when I stepped on the campus, I felt this strange feeling like, wow, it's not a big campus, not really scenic, um, but there was something special about yeah. it. And I was like, I could do this. Yeah. I could do this. So um, long story short, when uh, the college was going through a crisis and leadership and the board had to remove my predecessor, um, my name was submitted to be the acting president and they voted unanimously to make me the acting president. I drove down the next day, got the keys to the president's office and haven't looked back since. <laughs> wow, amazing story. Mm. Now, tell me some of the uh, unique things about Clinton College and mm. what make it special. Yeah, I think it's special that it was a junior college for so long, mm -hmm. so it had a very small focus. Um, and, and I mean that in, in several ways. One, it never saw itself being a big school, never had a large population, had very limited majors, had been basically focused on Rock Hill and surrounding South yeah. Carolina, North Carolina. Right. We're right on the line, so I'm literally 
less than 30 minutes away from the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. So almost half of my students come from Charlotte, but the school had never really seen itself beyond its limited scope. Yeah. Um, but it was full of potential. And that's what the bishop was saying to me. It's like, Clinton is full of potential. And I saw it. Yeah. That's my makeup, my character. I love building. I yeah. love taking small and making big. Right. So that was a great, perfect opportunity for me. So when I came to Clinton, I saw nothing but opportunity. So they just started living into being a four-year college um, in terms of uh, their own perception of themselves. There's nothing wrong with junior colleges, obviously. But if you made a decision, we're going to be a four year college you can't be on the fence you right. can't be you bipolar be in, right. <laughs> you know let, let's do it so yeah. I pushed them to be all in so we began adding new majors we developed a new strategic plan which calls for um, a student body to be about 725 students in the next six or seven years um, new facilities to facilitate all of the programs and activities that would happen. Uh, we began to become more public facing. Yeah. So we became a college that became a leader in the community. Right. So we developed what's called the Clinton Connection Action Plan, which is focused on revitalization of the South Side. That plan was adopted by the City Council of Rock Hill. The mayor was all in, other leaders. I mean, people are really excited yeah. about both what's happening at Clinton and what's happening on the South Side. Yeah. There are some people that got, you know, feel some kind of way about this being called the Clinton connection and action plan. Like, how does Clinton College get to? <laughs> well, we are the most significant institution on the South Side. We're the last standing HBCU. Yeah. There was an HBCU, another one called Friendship College, which also was a junior college. Uh, it's now defunct. Um, and we're still there. And, you know, I mean, I have uh, over 100 employees. I have an economic impact of about $10 million, even though we're a small school. Right. But for the south side of Chicago, when you put it in dollars and cents, it makes a lot of sense that we become the anchor for the growth of, right. of the south side. Right. So those things, I think, make us a very unique school that we're punching way above our weight and having the kind of influence that I think all HBCUs, if they really begin right. to look beyond themselves, could have that kind of impact in transforming a city. Right, and now Clinton is a small college, but you all have a uh, have an uh, athletic program, right? We do. You have a basketball team that's kind of okay. Don't, don't let me get started, <laughs> man, bragging on my team. Yeah, so the Golden Bears <laughs> of Clinton College, the, the men won their uh, conference championship last year. The women won their conference championship. They went all the way to the Final Four in the USCAA, which is for smaller yeah. colleges. Uh, we lost the championship to Paul Quinn College in Dallas, another yeah. HBCU, right. so we weren't mad about that. Yeah. My friend Michael Sorrell is the president yeah. there. They've done a great job. But for Clinton, the Goeta smallest school of all the schools that were in there, three first-team uh, first All-Americans, two men and one woman. The national players of the year were from Clinton College, men and women, and the national women's coach of the year, Jessica Blair, yeah. all came from Clinton College. Man, amazing. Amazing. From a small school in South Carolina. Yes, sir. <laughs> so um, talk to me about uh, your faith. I know you are a uh, pastor. Yeah. And so what role has your faith mm. played in your journey? Major role. I mean, everything to me. Um, I, I'm a church boy, as I mentioned, and my faith is what saved me. I mean, I grew up very poor uh, in the projects. I was actually homeless for most of my high school years. Um, I always tell the story that I went from no house to more house, right? Um, and, and that could be a book. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And 
my faith taught me a lot. I mean, in terms of understanding culture, understanding how God is on the side of the yeah. oppressed, I really believe that Jesus was a freedom fighter. Um, his, his trial sermon, yeah. if you will, was the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Yeah. And I have adopted that my entire ministry. I've basically served churches that were in very challenging, under-resourced, um, disenfranchised communities. And I believe in the liberation gospel. So James Cone, who just died a couple of years ago, was a father of black theology, an AME preacher and theologian, um, turned the theological world upside down by talking about the fact that this gospel that most people are talking about, this Jesus that they're talking about does not represent the Jesus of the Bible. He was on the side of the poor and the oppressed. Yeah. There is nothing in the Bible that jibes with this prosperity gospel yeah. that everybody's talking about. And there's nothing wrong with having wealth, but we understand that we have more so that we can do more, right. you know, to make an right. impact. So that shapes my faith. So. I see my job as a college president being a perfect complement to that because we're, um, and most HBCUs are, but we, there are schools that are um, really focused on students who wouldn't have a chance anywhere else, right? right? It's a school of opportunity. And we really, in, in, a, in a real sense, we're addressing economic injustice. You know, these students now um, have an opportunity to move up in life. So we right. do very well with social mobility. And I understand the gospel to be consistent with that understanding of lifting people, lifting as we climb. Yeah. And that certainly is a tenet of my faith. Wow, uh, very powerful words, man. I, I really appreciate that. I wanna just kinda uh, jump back into something you said because, I, and, and I wanna talk about this because there may be someone watching mm. who may come from similar circumstances. And you talked about going from no house to more house. Mm. And uh, a lot of times people find themselves in situations where they feel like um, they're, you know, they're hopeless, uh, there's no way out of their circumstances. Can you just touch on your journey and how you uh, were able to propel yourself out of that life of poverty. Yeah, so um, it's funny, I was, I had dinner last night with uh, my line brother who, who works in Peoria. He's a doctor who came from very poor background himself. He's now doing very well um, in his profession and in real estate, yeah. I mean, he's doing very well. And we talked about this, um, that there, and right now in our country, I think there's a big divide around um, uh, around capitalism and what it is it's doing to our society and there there are people that believe that poor people are poor by choice yeah right like people don't they don't decide to be poor I mean there's a system that's against them and it's hard to get out no one makes it by themselves right and I understand it and so to your question I'm where I am because there are people that helped me. Yeah. I had a village that surrounded me that wouldn't let me give up. There was one day in high school, I was just, I had given up, man. I was tired, we got evicted from place to place. I was struggling, I was standing in soup kitchen lines. I was buying day-old bread for the family and trying to do all this stuff to keep us together and it got too much for a 17-year-old kid. Yeah. And I walked away from school one day, I was supposed to be in class and wouldn't you know one of the members of my church, one of the leaders of my church, chairman of the steward board saw me and said, boy, get in this car. Yeah. And he lectured me for what seemed to be hours. It probably wasn't <laughs> that long, but he said, Lester, you have too much potential to give up. 
you know, we're counting on you. You're smart, you're gifted, you're going places. Don't yeah. you dare give up, right? So it takes that because we have so many of our kids. And here's the funny thing about this, D. It isn't just poor kids, right? We have kids who come from means who are just overwhelmed. We're not even right. talking about the mental health right. in our community like we should be. Right. You know, these kids are really bogged down. They're struggling. And because they've been, I, this is probably not the appropriate term, but entitled, right? Yeah. So we have worked so hard to make sure that our kids right. don't struggle like we did. Right. But with that, they don't have the same kind of grit right. and hustle right. and grind That's that right. we have. Right. And so um, they're not, sometimes they're not as resilient. I agree. Because they haven't been fighting. You know, you and I, we we had to work hard to get to where we are. And we know, we knew we did not have a safety net. We did not. Like we were going to either uh, sink, sink or, swim. or swim. That was it. No, <laughs> nowhere it. in between. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You got to make it now. Yeah. So, yeah, you're going to make some mistakes, and Lord knows I made a whole lot of mistakes along the way, but I had people who extended grace to me, who forgave me for my mistakes, who recognized, you know, the boy doesn't know any better, any better. He's young. He's still trying to figure it out. Right. And I think we have to do that for our young right. people, give right. them that kind of space until they can figure it out, but never leave them alone. Yeah. You know, never let them feel like they're not. So even with my own children, I mean, I have the most gifted, brilliant Children. I mean, they're just amazing, but they, you know, they're still trying to figure it out. Right. And I have to give them space to do that. I know they're under a lot of pressure because people expect them the, because yeah. they're Dr. McCorn's kids. That's right. You know, it's a lot of pressure. So you have to give them, but you also have to always let them know, I love you. You yeah. know, I love you unconditionally. There's nothing. I was watching with my daughter the other day, uh, T.D. Jakes. I don't wow. know if you've seen this thing with his daughter, Sarah Jakes. They're doing an interview where he basically says to her, and it resonated. He said, there's nothing you could do that could stop me from loving you. Right. I will always love you. I would, no matter what mistake you make, this love is irrevocable. Right. It's unconditional. And I think more of our young people need to they, experience they that. They need to hear those yep. words come from their parents. That's yeah. right. Man, that's powerful, Dr. Mm -hmm. McCorn. Uh, in about 30 seconds, can you tell me what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, exactly what I described just now. Yes, yeah. I, want, I want that legacy to be that young people felt that there was a president who loved them, who fought for them, yeah. who did absolutely everything within his power to give them a better life, to give them the best. Right. You know, I don't believe that our kids should just settle. You know, we have this thinking that, that poor people should just get whatever they're given. Right. No, they deserve the best. So I'm fighting as a president, as you know, to give them the best facilities, the best degree offerings, the best opportunities, and that's the legacy that I want to leave. And it's a great legacy to leave. And I want to do this, Dr. McCorn, before we end the show. I want to present you with our HBCU wow. Lifetime Achievement Award for oh. your continued commitment to wow. historically black colleges and university and to all of the success uh, that you've had and how you have showcased uh, HBCU excellence. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Dee. Appreciate And thank you, you for being on the show. And to my viewers, thank you for watching this episode of HBCU. And remember, without you, there's no me.